G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to our monthly Doctor Who episode, where for the first time in, what, three months, Dave, we're actually doing an episode together. That's right. After the Doctor and Companion Light episodes for the last two months, it's time to reunite for, well, it's not the season finale, but it's um, it's the continuation of the season. That's exactly right. As you folks out there will be hearing this, you've all just seen the second to last episode of the series, but we're not so lucky because we're coming to you from the past. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We always record these episodes a little bit early, but unfortunately between now and when the episode goes out, I'm going to be in Canberra the whole time, probably with some very late night Senate sittings. So we're recording a week early. We are indeed. So if we say anything in this episode that has been contradicted by what's happened in the in the following <laughs> week, please don't think we're stupid or crazy or don't keep up with Doctor Who. We really do. It's just that we're coming from the past. I'm really enjoying doing that. <laughs> Oh, that's that's great. How have you been, Rob? I've been very well, Dave. Very well indeed. I have just cleaned up a hairball before coming on the air, so that brought me down a little bit, but not too much. I'm I'm doing okay. Yeah, look, that's good. I'm in a good mood. I've had a good holiday. My football team has won a couple of games. Hopefully by the time this goes out, we've just won a third on the trot. And uh, yeah, Doctor Who's been good. It has been good. It's been a very good, consistent season. Even if there haven't been real highs yet, there have been some great, solid stories. And I'd rather maybe a good, solid series than a series with one or two standout stories and some, some junk. Yeah, look, more and more, I'm enjoying this season a lot more than I have going back, gee, I don't know, many, many years. I'm really loving this season. I'm loving The Doctor. I'm loving Bill. It's a good time to be a Doctor Who fan, and a lot of my friends as well have really found a lot of enthusiasm this year. Yeah, yeah, that's really good stuff. Unfortunately, though, that's not been reflected in the ratings, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about uh, in terms of the UK at least. But before we do, let's go back in time to a different season, an imaginary season, season 27, because I know you wanted to have a few comments on something Mike Solko and I put together last time we did a monthly ep here. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Look... Last episode, you and uh, Mike did have a chat about the hypothetical season 27, the big finish released on CD. And I just want to make a couple of uh, observations. One thing I really want to agree with you on is your comment that they shouldn't have reordered the stories in the season. And I learned that the hard way because when I listened to this season, I was driving around Central Australia on a holiday and I took the season along to listen to it. And I thought I knew what order these stories were in. You know, they started off with Earth Aid and then they had Ice Time and then um, Crime of the Century and then the, the, the last one. So I didn't bother to look at the sleeves and see which one should come first in the big finish order. I just put on Earth Aid. Yeah, because famously that's what we'd always been told. Oh, the new series would, you know, start off with Ace in command of a starship and it'd be like Star Trek and all of this. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. Yeah, that like we all know that was going to be the opening of the season if they'd had their way. So I've just put on Earth Aid, and suddenly there's like all these comments about characters that we should have already met and stuff that's already happened. I'm going, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and so it was really confusing. It really, really threw me out. The other observation that I wanted to make that I thought was one thing you did miss was had season 27 really happened, almost certainly it would have been Sylvester McCoy's last season mm. so the last story would have been a regen that's right and i guess we touched on that briefly by saying there were other stories that could have been put into this big finish season uh one by robin Mukherjee, where the doctor is down on a planet and meets this phenomenally intelligent adversary and ends up regenerating through going mad 
I think. So that was a possibility because, yeah, it, this Big Finish season is a bit weird insofar as Andrew Cartmel's written several of the stories when in a regular series of Doctor Who, he wouldn't have written any. So... Yeah, and, and look, it just highlights how hypothetical this all was and how much it's just drawing from ideas. But yeah, look, it was a really good episode that you guys did. I enjoyed listening to it. I think I was driving from Montreal down to Connecticut that day. I was listening to it. And so, you know, it was the American Forest were passing me by. I was listening to a nice discussion. And listeners, if you haven't had a listen, um, I think go and go and do so because it does have a good chat about what could have been. Yeah, it's... um. It's niche in some ways. I guess New Who only fans might not know much about season 27 or even the McCoy era in general. And I guess not everyone listens to Big Finish, but hopefully we put enough in there that it's of interest in general if you do want to dip your toe. Well, I guess that's my point. This isn't about Big Finish. It's about a whole hypothetical season, mm. and Big Finish is just the way that we can experience that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We, we had a lot of fun doing it, and I'd like to get Mike back on the show sometime. Maybe you should record something with Mike, see what you can come up with. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a possibility, yeah. yeah. I'm sure we'll, many things we can do, particularly as we're going to have, what, 18 months of... Uh, Doctor Who free time from here? I think so, and I think a lot of fans aren't even realising that yet, so... <laughs> yeah, uh, lean time's coming again, folks. Yeah, but we're in the middle of a season, we're in the middle of a good season, it's a good time to be a Doctor Who fan. Let's pull back, though, and, you know, we spend our weekly review episodes looking deep down in the weeds. So let, let's pull back and have a look at what's going on in the greater Doctor Who universe. Hmm. Now, the big thing is... We know this is Peter Capaldi's last season. Yes. We know that there's only, at the time this goes out, one episode to go, plus a Christmas special. Mm -hmm. So at some point, the Doctor has to be cast. The next Doctor has to be cast. Yes. Uh, Now, we know there's going to be some sort of interesting thing going on with this regeneration, and it will be a regeneration like we haven't seen before. And, And I know Cardiff likes to hype things up, but... Could that mean we see the new Doctor at the end of the series and not in the Christmas special? Ooh. I'm starting to hear some little bits of talk around the traps and around social media and in whispered conversations and and the like that maybe we're going to get something sooner rather than later. And Look, it's possible that by the time this episode goes out, we'll know know who the new Doctor is. I, I don't think that'll be the case, but I would say, look, undoubtedly... If we assume that, we will see a regeneration either in episode 12 or in the Christmas special, and I think we have to. Presumably the regeneration ends with the face of the new Doctor. That means the new Doctor must have been cast by now. It does, because the Christmas special, if it hasn't started recording by now, is on the verge of recording. So certainly there is someone who knows they're the Doctor out there in the world. (laughs) And there's a rumor that Russell T. Davies knows who it is, and he was he was happily hinting at the fact, you know, he knew something we didn't know, and he couldn't possibly tell you, but he did know. And in his wonderfully, you know, uh, over the top theatrical Russell T. Davies style, I've I've heard that rumor. I don't know if it's true. I've seen that video. He he was at an LGBT award show or something. He was holding an award. It looked like it said LGBT on it, and he was flirting quite a lot with the chap he was talking to, uh, who was desperately trying to get it out of him. He was very good, but he did let it slip that he kind of knew that it had been cast. Yes. Yeah, right. Okay, so I hadn't seen the video, so that's where that, that story came from. Mm. So, yeah, look, look, the new Doctor must have been cast. Has to have been. So... Rob, when we had this conversation going way back to uh, 
the start of February when it was announced that Peter Capaldi wasn't coming back, we had a lot of speculation about who it could be or, you know, would it be a woman? Would it be somebody of a different ethnic background? We came up with 21 different actors. Yeah. Do you have any feelings now that we're closer to the announcement about how it actually will pan out? Because I, I know I do, but I'll, I'll ask for your views first. I I don't actually. I you know I've seen all the rumors just like everyone else has seen rumors. You know the chap from Death in Paradise, Capaldi quits. He quits Death in Paradise. He seems to be the right age. He's kind of wacky. I think a lot of people actually wouldn't like the casting. Then again, that doesn't mean much. A lot of people didn't like the Matt Smith casting, and then he proved to be you know the favorite Doctor for many people. So that that doesn't mean anything. But Mm, Chris Marshall, I I don't know if he's got it. Similarly, there have been rumours about all sorts of people. So I'm I'm just in the dark. I hope it's Samuel Barnett. Um, <laughs> and that's I, I pretty much haven't moved from when we last recorded on this topic. Yeah, my my feeling, and I can't really peg this down with any any authority or any evidence. But as the years gone on, I've felt more and more as though. The hype has been purposely toned down, particularly about what sort of, you know, differences it could be. And I think we are going to get a male. I think we're going to get somebody relatively conventional. More and more, I think we're going to get somebody in the tenant mold. Mm, yeah. I think that that, that really uh, populist, and I don't use that term pejoratively, but a popular, a populist type pick that a traditionally popular pick, if you like. Um, I could be wrong, but but more and more the sort of the way that the hype has been steered and conjoled and uh, um, you know put out by the BBC pushes me towards that sort of a thing. So whereas at the start of the year there was lots of they could do anything, I think there's now a lot more of a feeling they're going to do what's expected. Yes, and I think part of that is because of the ratings that I know we're going to talk about. This isn't a popular view with some people. Some people do want to bury their heads in the sand and not talk ratings. But I think the BBC does have their eye on it, and I think they might like a more swashbuckling, dashing, running-around kind of doctor, um, not someone who looks like a penguin with his ass on fire, um, <laughs> and someone who will grab maybe a million more viewers back, uh, people who do watch the show because they like the lead, not because they like the show. They're not the kind of people I like having as fans particularly or talking to as fans because uh, I'd rather people love the show rather than just a certain actor. But beggars can't be choosers, I guess, when it comes to ratings. Yeah, and look, it reminds me a bit of uh, The Bill. And I was a big fan of The Bill when it was on, particularly in the earlier years. And one of the most famous characters in that was, of course, D.I. Burnside. He really was part of what, you know, uh, made that, that peak golden era of the Bill work. He was very, very popular, and then he left. And they did what they usually do. You know, they cast a character that's actively different to that, you know, because they need to have an anti-Burnside to sort of change it, you know, kind of like going from Tom Baker to Peter Davison. And then they said, oh, well, we haven't had a woman detective inspector. Let's have a woman detective inspector. And that was interesting and, and everything. But you can sort of feel from then on onwards, whenever they had to recast the detective inspector, there was that, could, could we kind of, can we kind of have another Burnside, please? <laughs> yes. You know, everybody loved it. it. It was really good for the viewership, and let's give the people what they want. Let's let's not be experimental. Let's let's give them another Burnside. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there is that feeling. I love Burnside as well, can I just say? He had his spin-off show, although that didn't seem to go anywhere. 
that that was a yeah. Look, we can talk at length about that, but uh, his spin-off <laughs> show wasn't great, unfortunately. <laughs> a couple of episodes weren't bad, but it was a very strange show. Yeah, look for people who never saw the Bill Burnside was like an old school kind of detective. He was a bald bloke. He was a tough nut. He'd, he'd bash someone to get information out of them. He was the kind of copper that people love in fiction but hate in real life, if I can put it that way. <laughs> that's, that's so true. And he had that real cockney wit and that old school sensibility, you know, my job's just to collar villains and I don't care if the rule book gets in the way and all that sort of thing. And he was played really, really well. By, yeah. uh, Christopher Ellison, wasn't he? Yeah, Chris Ellison, that's right. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but, you know, after he left, there was that sense of, can we just have more Burnside? Yeah. And, and I think that's where we're going to go with Doctor Who. There's that sense of, look, the whole Tennant thing was really, really good. I, I, I don't think Doctor Who's ever been bigger than when David Tennant was the Doctor. So I would get people in armchairs at high floors at the BBC going, well, if that worked, do it again. Yeah. And when you think back to the Tennant era, that was even before the big pandering to America happened. And apologies to our US listeners, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you certainly see in the Moffat era and with Smith much more pandering to the US market. And I think the US market really picked up during the Smith era, not during the Tennant era, even though mm. Tennant was such a popular doctor. It was during Smith that America took off. So we're talking about an era before all of that even happened. Doctor Who was getting rave ratings. And uh, yeah, who wouldn't want to go back to that? Yeah, so that, that's that's my feeling. We could all be surprised. There could be something really from left field, but I just get the feeling they're going to go safe. Oh, we could, you know, and I was having this discussion with a, uh, a Doctor Who podcast uh, out there. I don't, don't actually listen to this podcast, but we, we got talking on Twitter and um, the lady behind this podcast was very adamant that it should be a female Doctor um, and we got into that debate and I said, look, I don't think so. I think they'll go quite safe. I said, I wouldn't put it past Chibnall to make his second Doctor because assuredly he'll, he's got a five-year plan apparently and I don't think one Doctor will cover those five years. So I think he'll get a second Doctor and I think that Doctor could be a woman. And then we got into a discussion where I was saying, you know, if we do get a woman Doctor, I'd actually like to see a run of at least two or three women in a row so it doesn't become this weird sort of one-off sort of um, no novelty or gimmick or can be seen that way by people. And we went off in that tangent as well. So I've had a huge discussion on this just this week, actually. And I do think the next Doctor will be a bloke, but a woman might not be far away. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I don't want it to look tokenistic if they go down that role and, you know, get to a point where you have 20 Doctors and one of them was a woman. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, I'd, I'd like to see like a run of, as I say, two or three, so that even if they then switch back to blokes and it's blokes for a few more after that, there's at least a run of women. Yeah. Do you think that the BBC will do a, an announcement special? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know that the show is where it's at to do that kind of thing. And that sounds very negative, but... Here we are at the end of Capaldi's era, and as we're about to talk again about ratings, they're nothing like they were at the end of Smith's era. Mm, it, it, it is harder to imagine giving up half an hour of prime time, but they could do it on a, a minor channel, or they could do it as an online special. Yeah, yeah, look, it, it depends on who they've got as well. If they think they've got someone absolutely ice hot, uh, yep. <laughs> to, to use a classic who expression, maybe they will. Who knows? Yeah. I think we'll be hearing a lot more in the next fortnight. Yeah, indeed. And again, folks, if this has already happened by the time this episode goes out, please don't blame us. <laughs> no, in fact, if this has happened in the next week, we can say we called it. We just didn't know about it at the time. <laughs> exactly. Now, we've been skirting around this uh, a few times now. Shall we talk ratings, Capaldi's ratings specifically? 
Yeah, and, and look, the reason why we've put this in the running sheet, and, and, and you know this, Rob, but I guess I'm explaining this to the listener, is I think you can't talk about a season without having some reference back to the ratings. I think that is a part of Doctor Who now. It's part of television now. It needs to be discussed. But what I've found, Rob, and I think you found the same thing, which is why we really wanted to thrash this out in a more nuanced way, is that when a lot of people talk ratings, they either say, I love the show, therefore here are the reasons why the rating is not a problem, or I'm not really getting this season of Doctor Who. It's not working for me. Therefore, let me explain why the ratings tell you that it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> yes. And the truth is well and truly in the middle of that. And there's a lot of nuance that I think needs to be unpacked. That said, you start with a point where I think it is fair to say the ratings for this season and the ratings for Capaldi's era generally are lower than a tentpole Saturday evening family show should be would you concur with that yes yes i would so let's have a discussion about that i think i think the first thing we need to preface this all with is when i go back to season two when doctor who was really taking off and everything i said you know what this is going really well this could even have seven or eight seasons (laughs) and here we are (laughs) and here we are at season 10 so i was wrong then the doctor who has lasted a longer than i thought it would and that's a wonderful testament to the quality of the show over many years and many production teams and chibnall as we were just mentioning does have a five-year plan so there's another five years up our sleeve yeah i mean look if it, if it tanks it tanks and they're not going to honor that but it, it, there, there there is the intention that if everything continues well it will go another five years yes so so the, the show is going very very well that said it is a long way now from being the sexy new tv show that it was in 2005 2006 yes agreed and, and that, that's just a reality. Any show is going to struggle to keep its audience over that sort of time. Doctor Who has the inbuilt advantage, we all know, that you can change the regulars fairly easily and fairly regularly. That, that's why cop shows last a long time. You know, shows like Law and Order or The Bill or uh, Blue Healers or Heartbeat, you know, they, they all get to let go for 20 years because you, you can change the police officers on a regular basis and everyone thinks that's quite an understandable thing and you can keep going. So Doctor Who's like that. But nevertheless, to get to 10 years, you'd expect a certain decline in sexiness and in interest. Yeah, I think so. And and that's even been compounded, I think, by the casting of someone like a Capaldi uh, in a series where it's so important for new generations of kids to get into it. It seems that Capaldi's arrival, as much as I love Capaldi myself, and many people adore him, a lot of the people who liked, say, Tennant, and to some degree Smith because of the way he looked, dropped off when Capaldi came in. Oh, it's some old bloke not going to watch that. And kids coming up who had previously seen, you know, a fun-loving Matt Smith or a dashing Tennant saw this old bloke and didn't tune in. And we have lost viewers, no matter how you slice and dice it. In early Capaldi, I was saying we've lost about a million people. Here in later Capaldi, I'm saying we've lost almost two million people. This is even after you factor in people watching later on their uh, iPlayer over there or whatever. You know, I'm looking at consolidated figures. Even this series alone, Series 10, there's a two million difference between the pilot and, say, the lie of the land. Two million, Dave. Yeah, you can't argue that the series hasn't lost viewers. Now, it still ranks reasonably well in the table of watched or most watched shows over the course of a week. Yeah. So there is there is an extent to which television itself has declined, or the, the, the total market share has declined. 
Now, I, I, I get that. And I, I still think that Doctor Who is getting very good, acceptable, well, better than acceptable ratings for a show that's 10 years old. Yes. Where I think it is not performing the way it should or it could is as that tentpole Saturday evening show that the whole family wants to sit around and, and, and it becomes, you know, must-see family stuff. You know, the family all sits around and watches Doctor Who on Saturday, which is where it really succeeded under Russell T Davies. Mm. Whereas now I think people aren't quite doing it in the same way. And I'll, I want to make a point about that in a moment. Um, they are more willing to go, well, look, I'll, I'll watch this when I get to it. I'll watch it on iPlayer later or I'll watch it on DVD later. Uh, you know, some of it is just a change in habits. I know for me, if, even if I'm watching a show regularly every week, but then I miss two or three episodes, I say, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to catch up. I'll wait till the whole series is over and then I'll binge watch the whole thing in a couple of months' time. Mm. So there are no doubt people out there that started watching Doctor Who. They watched the first couple of weeks, then life got in the way, or they were enjoying a nice summer afternoon and they weren't watching Doctor Who. And they've gone, you know what, I'm three weeks behind. I'm not going to catch up now. I'll wait till all 12 are out, and sometime in a couple of months where it's a bit quieter, I'll just binge watch the whole series. Yeah. That's, that's fine. But on this point of family viewing, I've noticed a phenomenon now, both with friends of mine and with people I listen to on other podcasts, who are talking about how they will watch Doctor Who themselves on a Saturday, assess whether it's suitable for their kids to watch, and if it is, then go and watch it again with their kids a day or two later. Have you, have you been noticing this? I have, yeah, on, on some of the podcasts with older uh, uh, presenters who have kids. Yes, yes, I have, actually. Yeah, now, look, notwithstanding that I, I love the fact that a generation that was perfectly happy to be sat down at the age of six and watch the pyramids of Mars or the seeds of doom. <laughs> and now, and now going doctor who might be scary for their kids. Or the guy's guts being blown out in brain of Morbius. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's right. You know, kids that were raised on that and now parents are going, Oh, I don't know if I kids should watch this. And look, I'm not a father. I can't begin to make that judgment. I just, I just find it amusing the generational <laughs> switch. But if there is a lumber of the audience that are not comfortable having their kids just sit down and watch this on a Saturday night, does that mean that in some way the show has let down the family audience? Yeah. In in some ways, the show has grown up a little bit to be maybe more what fandom wants and has always wanted. You know, people kind of have this selfish gene where they, they watch it as a kid. Then as they grow up, they want the show to sort of mature with them. You see it in Star Wars as well. You mm. see a lot of people wanting more mature Star Wars, even though... What attracted them to Star Wars was that sort of, you know, childlike wonder of seeing the Yoda puppet for the first time or, you know, yeah. believing in yeah. a mystical force or whatever. Those people now want a Boba Fett movie where he's, you know, I don't know, chopping people's heads off or, you know, doing, <laughs> doing something horrible. And it's like, no, you're kind of missing the point. You, you've grown up. <laughs> the, Star Wars is quite right to remain where it is. Doctor Who should maybe, maybe be a little more family friendly than it is right now. Well, I know watching it on the ABC iPlayer that we watched on Rob, at least half the episodes this season have come with parental warnings. Mm, they have, yeah. You know, whether it's for violence or supernatural themes, as I think was the case for the Rona Monroe episode, yeah. there's been a number that I've, I've said and gone, oh, this is a, a, a parental advisory before Doctor Who. Ooh, that's that's not really what it should be doing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And... Capaldi's second series, I'm trying to think back now, was, was particularly dark. And I was thinking, this this really has sort of overstepped the Smith era, and particularly the Russell T. Davis era, which was more mm. populist, leading us back, of course, to Will Chibnall be more populist, in a good way. 
um, will he give us a more tenant-like Doctor and more tenant-like episodes? And, and that's right. I can remember, again, going back to the, the, the sort of the peak of the Russell T. Davies tenant era, where myself and my group of close fans, you know, had been fans back through the 90s. We, 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 you know, we're the definition of that long-term traditional old-school fan. And we would look at the Russell T. Davies era, and I remember us having many times the conversation that said, a lot of this is really good. We're enjoying it. We're really happy the show is back. However, it's a shame that the show has got these sort of soap opera elements, you know, where there's always that hint of romance between the Doctor and the Companion, and we're always going back to London to see what the family is up to, and there's these little sort of soapy aspects. We say, we don't much like that in our TV. However... We acknowledge that for Doctor Who to be successful, that's got to be in it because that's what gets a mass audience sitting around at seven o'clock on a Saturday as a family watching the show. And so therefore we, we cop that because it may not be what we want, but it's what a lot of people want. And if that's what makes Doctor Who successful and popular is a little bit of a romance interest and a little bit of, you know, Rose's mum or Martha's sister or whatever. Okay. And maybe the fans have kind of got their wish to not have as much of that. And uh, when the gods want to punish us, they grant us our wish. Yeah, that's right. It has created some interesting stories and some interesting series. I mean, this one we're watching quite now, we, we, we're praising very highly uh, for being a very consistent and good series. So it's not to say that it's creating bad episodes. And in no, fact, no, no. I think when people look back on eras, they'll, you know, be quite happy with what they see. But in terms of the actual overnights in particular, and I know people say don't look at the overnights, but good good Lord, that one that was three million recently, that's like the, the worst overnight Doctor Who has ever had. It's hard not to go, wow, look at that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is, this is not a ban. I stress this. It's not about what we like or what we want or what we want to see or our judgment. We're simply saying that there was a formula that Russell T. Davies had that proved to be incredibly popular. And if you want to go back to Doctor Who being must-watch Saturday viewing, then that is, in many ways, the, the, the how-to guide of how to do it. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be the way. It could be that the BBC says, you know what, Doctor Who is no longer our tentpole Saturday afternoon viewing. It's going to be Tuesday night viewing. And it's going to be something that we put on at nine o'clock on a Tuesday, knowing full well it will double its viewing figures mm. on iView or on downloads or on other media platforms. And, and, and television's going down that path. There is some television now that, frankly, it almost doesn't need to be put on terrestrial TV. It exists now to be downloaded. I mean, the whole Amazon Netflix um, original shows don't get a terrestrial viewing until much later in their life. Yeah. So yeah. If, if you're happy, if, if you're happy as the BBC to say, we don't care what platform you watch Doctor Who on, we don't care if it's half of its audience figure is via alternate platforms, that's fine. But if you're saying this is part of our must-watch Saturday evening viewing, then that is a different prospect. It is, and it makes me think, could it be time to go back, like in the Davison era, to some midweek slots, or at least a midweek slot? Because it seems in the UK they're obsessed on the weekends with these, um, you know, shows like Britain's Got Talent and um, Strictly Come Dancing. And, and cooking shows. And, and cooking shows. and Variety shows. Yeah. Variety shows. Basically. Yeah. I mean, these are shows that we have versions of down here. I think our version of Strictly's Come and Gone. People got sick of it. Australia's Got Talent. 
Yeah, not that many people watch it. We we aren't as obsessed by these shows as it seems the Brits are. It seems, I don't know whether it's the climate or something, but everyone gets inside and just obsesses over these bloody shows. Uh, mm. And they're, they're just nowhere near as popular down here. Well, uh, something something like celebrity, um, Britain's Greatest Bake Off, what is it, the British Bake Off? Yes. I don't think if they've even tried to do an Australian version of that. No, they showed the British one, I think, on one of the digital channels of Channel 9, I think. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Yes, I think they did. And I mean, yeah. I'm even a Sue Perkins fan. I think Sue Perkins is quite fun. But I didn't watch that. Why would I watch that? Uh, no, I, I just no. look at the UK sometimes and think, fellas, what are you watching over there? Yeah, there, there is a quintessentially British television style over there. And, and yeah, so, you know, what we're saying is the ratings aren't about us. The no. ratings aren't about fans. What we're saying is that, yes, Doctor Who can be a online show, in which case it's not a Saturday evening show. But if you want to go back to what was popular, well, look at when it was ultimately popular. And, you know, t- to me, ratings are not a reflection of quality. No, not at all. You know, I can remember vividly there was one night here where there was a TV show, a drama about the last Australian to be executed overseas, or at the, that time he was, he's since been another one in Indonesia, but um, a, a young guy who was executed overseas for a drug career. And it was a brilliant drama. It was shown on SBS here, and it got 120,000 viewers. Yeah. It won heaps of awards. It was wonderful drama, 120,000 viewers. On another channel was a interior design reality show <laughs> that got 1.2 million. Yeah, yeah. The most mindless, vacuous stuff gets the ratings, and quality doesn't. Yeah, look, sometimes there's a wonderful confluence where quality hits the mainstream target and does get audience. But but I'm not ever going to say that ratings are comparable to quality, and that would be a dumb argument to make. Oh, absolutely. And even, I mean, I mentioned we, we look at Series 10 and we say this has been great and consistent, but even when you look at the AIs, which is a lot wider than just fandom, I just look down the list for this series, it's like 83, 83, 84, 83, 83, 82, 82, 82, 83. Uh, that they're the ones I've got so far. That's really high stuff. That's great appreciation. Yeah, look, it is, but I'm very cynical of the modern-day AIs because back in the day, as I understand it, AIs were done by the whole population. Like People were asked, go and watch this show, even though you wouldn't normally, and give us your view. Right. Whereas now an AI is a measurement of those who are, right, who are watching it. So it's like going to a Carlton versus Collingwood football game and saying, do you like Carlton versus Collingwood football games? <laughs> you know, if somebody's chosen to watch Doctor Who and you say, did you enjoy it? Well, the fact they've chosen to watch it probably suggests that they are predisposed to liking it. True. The, the final point that I want to make, and I don't know if you've got more, Rob, but certainly this is the final point I had, is people seem to try and correlate the quality of an episode with the ratings that week, which seems to imply that audiences have some magic ability to know in advance if an episode is going to be something they enjoy and then decide if they're going to watch it, which is absolute nonsense. Mm. Oh, I completely agree with that. So, yeah. so you know, what is it that makes somebody decide to watch an episode? It's going to be, did they enjoy the past ones? And it's going to be the trailer. And as I think it was Mark on the Diddly Dumb podcast made the point, both on their podcast and in a Twitter conversation, when it came to the Empress of Mars, when the trailer for that came on, kids in a couple of families he knew went, hey, cool, Doctor and a big green monster, I want to watch that episode. Yeah, that's it. And, and I think we can't undersell this idea that if, if your trailer is going to have the Doctor in an exciting adventure with the monster of the week, that perhaps is going to get kids and viewers in a bit more than some other styles of trailer will. 
Yeah, again, completely agree. Fair enough. Did you have any other points or have we thrashed that completely? Oh, look, I think we could talk ratings all day, but for the sake of our dear listener <laughs> out there, we'll move on. And I think you've got something that has come up on Twitter recently with some of our listeners that you wanted to address about um, older classic stories. Yeah, look, this is just a little fun topic I wanted to throw at you. And I think uh, it, it actually got quite a lot of people engaged in the Twitter conversation. So I thought it was worth expanding into our main program. Now, somebody was having made a comment about how it's very unusual in the old school stories that six parters really merited their worth. And there are some great ones, particularly the ones in the Hinchcliffe era that really took that two plus four format and made it work like the Seeds of Doom, two episodes in Antarctica, four episodes in England, mm. Talons of Wang Chiang, four episodes of discovering the cabinet, two of how to deal with it once Greer has got the cabinet. Yeah. Hinchcliffe did it really well, but we can't deny there are a lot of six parters in Doctor Who's history that, struggle with the length but i then made the contrary point and said if we all agree six parters are uh, often struggle with their length why is it that the seven parters or longer are almost all bona fide classics the daleks marco polo daleks master plan evil of the daleks the invasion silurians inferno ambassadors of death they're all in my mind top stories and they're all really long. The War Games. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting topic because uh, as I've, well, I was saying in that Twitter conversation, I'd love to take um, <laughs> an edit to, uh, say, Inferno, for example. Uh, you disagree with me on that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it is regarded as a classic. You know, it's regarded as a classic whether I want to edit it down or not. And why is it that that extra episode does that? Yeah, look, you could take any classic Doctor Who story and prune it a bit for modern sensibilities. I, I, nobody's disagreeing with that. And in, in fact, I think we, we talked about in that Twitter feed as well, the way that um, Topher Grace has taken the um, Star Wars prequels and made them into sort of a one, two hour movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you, you can always make something tighter. And someone's done an edit or actually several people have made an edit of the Hobbit films as well. Uh, that, that overblown Peter Jackson version taking my favourite small book and turning it into three overblown films. That's right. Oh, my God, that was a mistake. Oh, and, and some of the best stuff he sort of cut out of them and added a whole lot of stuff that never happened. Oh, don't ugh, don't get me started yeah. on that, Dave, please. No, no. <laughs> uh, but, yes, yeah, so, so I was sort of wondering, is there something about that length where people go, wow, it's seven episodes? We need to be actively looking at extra stuff. So in the case of Inferno, they actively insert the whole parallel universe thing mm. to, to, to add that sort of thing in there. In the case of the Silurians, the entire plot thread with the Silurian virus, which to me I think really makes that story work even better, and it adds extra tension, extra drama, those wonderful scenes at Waterloo Station. You know, that was all inserted because they've gone, wow, this is seven episodes. We've got to make it go. Evil of the Daleks, you know, changed its location. And you have the last two episodes on Scaro. Uh, the Invasion is probably less so one of them. That just somehow manages to get to eight episodes. You know, it, do, do people go to this extra length to make a really good story if they're trying to fill more than six? I think you can make that case. Yeah, I think you can squeak out a six, maybe by using a trick like the two and four we were talking about earlier. 
But when you're doing seven, yeah, you've got to do something a bit different. Seven or more, that is. You know, you mentioned mm, war mm. games as well, or Dalek Master Plan. Um, you've got to do that bit more, and maybe that does push you into making it just a little more interesting, a little more nuanced. Um, some other interesting things happen that wouldn't have happened if it was only a six-parter. So, yeah, I, I quite like this theory, Dave, even though I would like to edit some of those seven-part Pertwees. Yeah, and, and look, Dalek's Master Plan is interesting. Oh, look, I think that's a wonderfully good story. I love that story. But it is kind of a six-part story, which is everything from the Doctor arriving on Kemble, stealing the Tranium Corps, being chased by the Daleks and getting back to Kemble and escaping. That's that's actually a sort of a six-part story. Then you've got a couple of um, specials. You've got the Christmas special and the New Year's Day special. And then you've sort of got a four-part story, I think, to finish, which is where the monk comes in and then they have the big build-up and the, the final thing. So that, that's a bit different. But I guess what I'm saying out of all of this is Doctor Who doesn't need to be scared of length sometimes. If you've got the plot to make it work, you can make a seven-parter or an eight-parter or even a ten-parter actually be a really good story if you're willing to put in a few extra subplots, a little bit more complication, a bit more character stuff. I mean, again, you look at the Solarians, and I'll, I'll wax lyrical over the Solarians. I've said <laughs> in the past it's my all-time favourite story. The Solarians has some wonderful little character moments that you wouldn't get in a four-parter. And, and I think it's a better story for it. And I, I love these stories. And so I think that even if you condemn, yep, rightfully, a lot of six-parters, don't be scared of length because sometimes length, length can really make a good, good story. Yeah. Oh, indeed. And look, there are six-parters I actually lap up. You know, Talons of Wang Triang, I think, is fantastic. I couldn't yes. imagine that not being a six-parter. Yeah, absolutely. When it's done well, it's, it's really good. Um, you know, Seeds of Doom is another example. Um, I actually think Seeds of Death kind of hangs together quite well for a 1960s six-parter. I've never had a problem with it. I heard people talking about it in almost disparaging terms on a podcast recently. I thought, oh, is that perceived fan wisdom now that it's no good? Oh, I always quite liked it. Yeah, Power of the Daleks. Yeah. Dalek Invasion of Earth. There are some good ones. There are some very good ones out there. It's, I think that the, the, the defining issue is, is, is almost a coincidence. They're, they're just bad stories that happen to be six-parters, not six-parters make a bad story. Mm. Agreed. Now, you had something to discuss, Rob. I did. I, I just wanted to pull out briefly, because I'm, I'm not going to read it to the, the listeners out there. Um, recently on DoctorWho.tv, that website, Stephen Moffat penned a, a bit of a column on it being 10 years, 10 years, Dave, since Blink, and just some reflections on that. Can you believe it's been 10 years? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> And, you know, it's full of typical Moffat stuff. I mean, I'm glancing over a paragraph now where in, in the same paragraph he talks about how fans hate him. He talks about how he's won all these awards. And then he goes into this sort of self-deprecating, um, you know, ness that, you know, oh, there are lapses into sitcom dialogue. There's a disturbing fetish for bootstrap paradoxes. And, of course, showboating cleverness, which isn't all that clever when you think about it. Just goes to show anything can work on a good day. So he's self-deprecating. He's talking about winning awards and he's saying how fans hate him. That's just one paragraph. Dave um, I'll leave it to people to go and read because it's quite interesting you know he reflects on the storyline and some of the characters and stuff but just at the end I'll just read this little bit he says um, 
I've got little doubt it was Blink that got me the showrunner job, so I owe a lifetime of thanks to Phil Collinson and Julie Gardner for making me look a lot better than I deserve, and to Russell T. Davis for making me seem for a moment good enough to replace him. I'm feeling very nostalgic today, can you tell? There's a reason when I read this, I'm getting into a car and going to the very last Doctor Who read-through I'll ever attend. The end of day starts here, um, and so on and so forth. So it's... It's a nice reflective piece. It's, it reminds us that Blink is 10 years old. And it's, it's typical Moffat in the way it's written. You know, one part self-deprecating, one part bragging, and, um, you know, some mm. other stuff thrown in for good measure. It's well worth the read, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about because I wonder if he's aware, and I'm sure he must be, that for some fans, not all fans, but for some fans, he, he will never top Blink. No, that's right. He would have that sense of he can go into his office day after day, long hours, grinding decisions, trying to make the the pounds and pennies work. And at the back of his mind, he's got, you know what, no matter what I turn up with, some people still say, it's not as good as Blink. Yeah. (laughs) Which is this weird Dr. Light episode, you know, really. (laughs) That's right. And and, and that's, that's, I think, part of the trap as well that, you know, I I often talk about the earth shock effect on, on... 80s Doctor Who, that when Earthshock was such a big hit with fans, with the ones that were hanging out with John Nathan Turner and telling him how good he was, he sort of spent the rest of his career, particularly with Eric Saywood, going, can we do Earthshock again? Mm. Yeah, exactly. You, you see across, the, 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 you know, whether it's Resurrection of the Daleks or Ambassadors, um, not Ambassadors, but Caves of Androzani, uh, Warriors of the Deep in many ways, there's this attempt, can we do Earthshock again? And they keep trying to get back to that wonderful moment. Moffat couldn't do Blink again, because as you say, it's such a unique, contrived, Doctor-like episode that if every episode was an attempt to try and do that, it would be ludicrous. Mm. It, was, it, it can't be done. So he's got this totemic, wonderful, award-winning, loved, university-regarded episode that in some ways will always overshadow anything that comes afterwards, and he can't do it again. Yeah. And even when he tries to reuse the creatures... He's not trying to remake Blink, but even they have varying amounts of success. I think that Smithy two-parter with the Weeping Angels, uh, that first one he did, that was, that was quite all right. Yeah, I'm, I, I quite like that one. But by the time of Angels Take Manhattan, that's, that's just bloody ridiculous. Um, you know, so <laughs> yes. even though people are clamouring to see these monsters return, that'll never be the same e- either, even if he's not trying to remake the Blink storyline. Yeah, and th- there's a great lesson in there as well, just to sort of take this this tangent and run with it. Sometimes when people talk about bringing back a classic monster, you go, is it because the monster was so great it deserves another story or because the monster combined with that setting, combined with that script was really good? And I I think, well, I look at the Yeti. I think we got two bites of the cherry with the Yeti, but I think the Yeti in any other story would be kind of ridiculous. Mm, Agreed. Yeah. And then, you know, we see this with, with a number of classic monsters. You know, Omega, Omega and the Three Doctors, great villain memorable villain, you know, something that stands out from my childhood. Omega in Ark of Infinity? Mm, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes sometimes your iconic villain just, just needs its one story because everything worked right, and you need to leave it. Yeah, rather than taking either a monster or a scenario that worked well and then working backwards and trying to shoehorn a story into that. Mm, mm. Yeah. And credit to Moffat for uh, for not trying to go down that path. You know, whatever else you say about Moffat, and he's had good, you know, stories and bad stories in my view. And it, it, it's funny again to go on a sidetrack. A while ago, I wrote down my top fifteen 
favourite New Who stories and my least liked 15 favourite New Who stories. And I think Moffat had written six of the first column and six of the second column. <laughs> You know, which I think I think sums up where I, you know he, he, my my view of him. You know he's he's done some wonderful awesome stuff. He's done some stuff I really don't like. And and Russell T Davies was the same. Like he had th- he had four in each column or something. You know th- th- that's just the nature. I'm, I'm sure you know Robert Holmes has done some great and some weak stuff as we've talked about before. Um, he's he's a mixed phenomenon. And I, I I've said before and I say it again, in twenty or thirty years time when Richard Marsden writes his tell all book of the Moffat era, like he did with the JNT era. I think this is going to be fascinating. What's happened behind the scenes, how things have come and gone and happened, the the, the turbulence that we kind of sometimes get hints about and the successes of other things. I think the Moffat era is going to be a fascinating one to really look back on when, you know, it's all over and dead and buried and moved on. Oh, look, if it's some of the stories you hear, you think, could that even be written until someone's dead, perhaps, <laughs> to avoid defo? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Anyway, so that's Blink. Uh, please go and have a look at that on DoctorWho.tv. It's a great little column. And, Dave, I know that you also wanted to talk about, because this ties into the current series we're watching as well, and people will have seen The Master and Missy in the episode they've just watched today as this episode goes out. Uh, just a bit about the character. Yeah, I thought it would just be nice to sort of spend five minutes talking about The Master and the character and our memories and everything. And I'll start off by saying one thing that I always really enjoy watching is the progression of the master's character across season eight of the classic era. And I think you really can see a switch in the character as that series goes on in the terror of the autons. Although people make fun of the ending there and I, I get why they do to me, terror of the autons has always kind of been about the master coming back and wanting the doctor to like him. Mm. wanting the doctor to admire him like hey doctor see what i can do and then when the doctor says all right i've seen what you can do can we stop it now he's like yeah that's cool i don't really (laughs) care about conquering the earth i just wanted to show off for a bit (laughs) you know the whole the whole story is about that um claws of axos is basically you know he's captured by the axons and he says look hey let me go and i'll take you to this planet it's really good and they're like okay and takes him to earth you then build up though to uh colony in space an underrated story in my view but i won't go down that path in that, you have a moment where the master says to the doctor, share the universe with me. Mm. You know, I've, I've done all of this work. I've got it all here. Share the universe with me. And the doctor says, no, I don't want to share the universe with you. And that's the point afterwards where the master's like, right, I no longer want to impress you. I want to kill you. Yeah. You know, you've, you've spurned me. Do you see similarities then between the Delgado master and Missy? You know, talking about sharing the universe there reminds me of, and I know you hate the story, but, you know, I've built built you a cyber army. Check this out. Um, and maybe just wanting to be liked. And in these more recent episodes, you know, turning good, wanting to be friends again. You know, uh, of course, it's probably a trick. But do you see maybe more similarities there between Missy and Delgado, whereas the Sim Master maybe wanting to kill the Doctor and so on might be more like the Ainley Doctor? Look, look, I do. And I mean, I, I, I criticise the way it was done in Death in Heaven, and you know, that's fine. But I, I do think there was an attempt at that sort of thing. And, you know, there, there's a wonderful scene in The Sea Devils where the Doctor goes to visit the Master and he's seen him locked up in prison and he and Joe walk away and the Doctor's sad. And, you know, Joe says, what's the matter? He says, you know, I'm, I'm seeing someone who used to be a friend. You could almost say that we were at school together mm. and I'm seeing him locked up and, you know, that, that makes me sad. And and there clearly is between the characters this this 
bond that goes right back to their childhood where they clearly were close, close friends. And there's 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 no more passionate enemy than the person you used to love. Yeah. You know, and I think that that really at its best, that defines the master. And and so that's why, I, look, even though I've, I've struggled with some of Missy's episodes in the past, I'm really starting to warm to some of the stuff we're seeing in this more subtle performance we're getting. Because I do think it echoes this Delgado thing, as opposed to the Ainley master, where, look, Ainley did a good job with what he was given. And I think there's a couple of brilliant stories featuring Ainley. Um, you know, both Survival and Planet of Fire are in my top 380 stories. But there's also stuff like, you know, Mark of the Rani, mm-hmm. the King's Demons, yeah. which is just like, what's this guy doing? You know, I mean, I mean, Mark of the Rani to the point, the master's standing in a field dressed as a scarecrow, just on the off chance the Doctor will stop by, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 then gets out of the gear before he he's even meets the Doctor. Like, like it's just it's just the master's just being mastery because the master's the master now. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, someone on Twitter last night was posting some scenes from Castrovalva and making fun of them. I think Castrovalva is a concept and as a story is quite, quite good. But yep. those scenes, Dave, where the master gets on the cherry picker, which moves really slowly as he goes up to talk to Adric. <laughs> and they can't overdub the sound because it's making such... That's right, yeah, because the, the yeah. cherry picker made such a noise they had to cut all the sound out so they couldn't have dialogue at the same time. Yeah. And they're just staring at each other like... Eh. <laughs> It's up really, it's like, oh no, oh my god. Whereas maybe the master in, say, Planet of Fire, which, um, gosh, thinking back, Kate Orman once wrote a fanfic for one of my fanzines back in the 80s, and she was taking the point of view that the Doctor had actually killed the master in Planet of Fire. That was the end of the master. You know, and if we saw him again in the future, it was just an earlier master. You know, the Doctor watching the master burn there, that was it. That was quite that was quite deep to me as like a thirteen year old or whatever I was at the time. Yeah, that's you know? a really interesting concept. And I've I've always quite liked Planet of Fire, maybe because I was I think of that sometimes. I think, gosh, the Davison Doctor is just standing there watching him burn. Oh, that's that's pretty bad actually. Yeah, no, I look I like Planet of Fire. I think the master's really good in that. He's determined, he's desperate to survive, he's ruthless, he's he's underplayed in most of the cases. I I think it's a great story and um you know, I, I love survival as well. There's a wonderful scene where the master and the McCoy doctor confront each other. And, 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 and yes, it's got that cat theme coming from survival, but they do start circling each other like a couple of cats. Yeah. You know, that's that, that's that wonderful little interplay that I think's really good and so much better than some of the more overstated stuff. And look, you know, even Delgado's master had some, you know, slightly bizarre moments, you know, come Kronos come, for example. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But but even even that ends with that moment of the master begging for his life. Yeah, yeah. And and that idea that you know underneath every bully is just a coward. Yeah. That the moment that it's well, I'm going to torture him for the rest of his existence. He's like, no, I can't bear it. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's very good writing, actually. That takes us into the the modern era, and you know we've seen the Sim Doctor, we've seen Derek Jacobi, and of course our listeners will have seen the first of two parts of the Master returning. Uh, John Sim with a beard. How does that play into things? Is he from an alt universe? Again, we don't know because we haven't seen it. We're in the past. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but there's a whole other layer which could be coming to the Master character, whether 
this master has come from an alt universe or how has he turned up? Why mm. does he have the beard? Is he being turned into a Cyberman? I have all these questions as I approach the episode that everyone else has seen and I haven't at this point in time. Yeah, and I, I've often said that John Sims' first take of the master in that, that, that two-parter is that wonderful anti-tenant performance that's that modern version of the master, but he still is incredibly ruthless. Mm-hmm. He's still incredibly devious. He's slightly mad, but he still gets, you know, those wonderful lines like, this is the bit now where I'm going to explain my plot to you, I don't think. And, <laughs> yes. You know, I, I think it's really good. Unfortunately, his second appearance, I just think he's bloody awful. In the hoodie and eating the chicken and such. And and flying around on cartoon lightning. and Yeah. Yeah, I just think that's awful. It's not, it's not the best of the master. No. Hopefully this return of Sim will redeem him in some way. And it's got me thinking, you know, you mentioned how, you know, the the master has suited the Doctor before, like Sim suited Tennant. Delgado certainly suited Pertwee. Uh, and I think Missy suits Capaldi, you know, mm. the, the two Scots actors, you know, facing off against each other. It, it seems so right at times. I, I, I agree with you in this season where she's played it more doer. Mm. I, I didn't think so in the earlier seasons where she's played it more manic. I, I don't think that riffed off Capaldi well, but I don't think they have got into sync in this season. Yeah. Sorry, you were, I was just interrupting there. No, no, not at all. Um, that was quite good. And, and it just leaves me thinking, has Moffat spoken to Chibnall? Are they bringing the Sim Master back to be the Master because he will fit with whoever Chibnall's got to play the Doctor? Has Chibnall cast like a late 30s, 40s kind of actor and Sim will suit that, that kind of... Um, Doctor, because I'm just thinking, will we see a master regeneration in this last two episodes, perhaps? Yeah, look, it's possible, but you know, I've still got five dollars on the table, and I've probably been proved wrong by the time this goes out. But five dollars on the table that John Sim's going to walk in, point at Missy, and go, "She's an imposter. I'm the real master," and it's all been a great big elaborate trick and a con job over three years. Mm, which. <laughs> which I then say, well, well, who is Missy? Is it the Rani? <laughs> well, that's, that, that could take you into a whole different area. But, um, yeah, it, yeah, the Rani, I've never understood why people are so desperate for her to come back. Oh, I don't know. You know, potential for a, a very strong female character to be in the in the series, perhaps. It's why they've created Missy, after all. They could have just mm. put the Rani in there and had a strong time lady. But, um, yeah. I don't know, maybe Pip and Jane Baker hold the rights or something. Who knows? Yeah, look, I, I kind of take the view, and I mean, we're, we're having this conversation at a time where the Wonder Woman movie has had the most successful opening of any solo superhero movie other than Batman and Superman. Mm. So better than Captain America's first movie, better than Iron Man's first movie, any of those, Wonder Woman has beaten them comfortably. So, you know, there is that desire to see a well-written strong female lead absolutely now to which i go go and invent one you know if you if you think your doctor who could do with that and absolutely it could deal with that and it would be great to have it in there you don't need to go and pick one out from the past don't go find cesare of diplos or miss winters or the rani create one we're creating bad strong male villains all the time go create more female ones you don't need to raid the toy box yeah i guess there's always that that desire, though, to go back to the past that, that, that sort of looms large in a lot of Doctor Who writers and fans in particular, you know, psyches, they, they, they love going back to the past. Although mm. when we do it too many times, fans will say, oh, we're going back to the past too many times. 
<laughs> you can never satisfy fans. Yeah, and look, I, I guess if they ever bring the Rani back, what it should be is a writer coming in and saying, I've got this idea. You know, I've got this plan, not a showrunner going, can you go write me a Rani script? Mm, yes. You know, the, the best, you know, Mark Gator's coming along and saying, I've got this idea, I want to do an Ice Warriors story. Not, Mark, can you do me an Ice Warriors story? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And look, you know, after these uh, three series with Missy featuring in all of them, I just wonder whether they would do the Rani anytime soon because it is such a similar character. It's a female Time Lord who, who yeah. doesn't get on with the Doctor and who has a relationship, a past relationship with the Doctor. It's, it's essentially the same thing. Yeah, and I, I've often appreciated what Pip and Jane Baker talk about when they talk about creating the Rani and the difference between immorality and amorality. And, and yes, that's a really interesting difference, but it, the end of the day in a television show it's kind of not that nuanced it's either good guy or bad guy mm. so the fact that they're immoral or amoral rather than immoral kind of just gets lost in well they're they're this week's baddie yeah although i will say the rani in mark of the rani is an awesome character like very science driven very interesting um time in the rani though Ooh, terrible yeah, and that's it. In time of the Rani, she isn't that amoral character. She's just, she's just the baddie of the week. Yeah, exactly. All right. I think we've uh, had a good discussion there on the Master and Missy. I know there's one thing you want to ask our listeners before we sign off for this episode. Yeah, so a topic we want to cover next month, listeners, is about the best writers who aren't the regulars or aren't the ones we always talk about. So, look, we all know that Robert Holmes wrote a lot of Doctor Who and a lot of it was great. We know that Terence Dix wrote a lot. Malcolm Hulk wrote a lot. Stephen Moffat wrote a lot. Mark Gaddis wrote a lot. Russell T. Davies wrote a lot. Who are those authors, though, that have only written one or two or three stories that just had a great hit rate? And the reason this came up was I was talking about Chris Boucher with a couple of people. I said, you know what? Chris Boucher wrote three scripts, and I think he hit it out of the park three times. Mm. And that's a, that's a pretty impressive hit rate for a guy that only wrote three stories. I can think of some others that only, have only written one or two stories, both in New and Classic Who, that are, you know, their hit rate's really, really good. And maybe it's because they didn't get a chance to, to, to write a dud one. If they'd written 10, one would have fallen down. But listeners, send us in, tweet us, email us, um, drop us a line. Let us know who you think are those non-regular, those one-off, two-off, three-off writers that you think need to get a bit more recognition. And we'll have that conversation in our next monthly episode. This is going to be a really interesting one because I've already got a couple in my head. You know, one is a, a New Who writer and one is a Classic Era writer. And I'm, yep. I'm itching to talk about them. Uh, mm. Obviously, we won't start that discussion now. So this is open, Dave, to, to the Classic Era and the Modern Era, yes? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and, and people who have written up to three, but preferably maybe one or two. Yeah, let, 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 let's cap it at up to three. Okay. This is very interesting. Write into us at hello at the dwshow.net or reach us on Twitter. You can't really say much on Twitter, though, so t drop us an email. Go on. Pull up your email, write us, and uh, let us know what you think. Yeah, but look, if they want to just get it on Twitter and say, here's a nomination, throw it in the conversation, we'll have that conversation. Yeah, oh, that's true. We'll have the conversation for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for. We'll, we'll try and imagine what you mean by just saying a, a writer's name. Yes. Dave, I think that just about puts a lid on, on this month's episode. It's good to be back chatting just general Doctor Who and just blowing off some steam. Yeah, look, it's 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 nice to be able to do that. It does become very intense in fandom when a season's on, and that's 
for very obvious and you know, perfectly valid reasons, but it's nice to pull back a bit and just look at a few other things. But um, yeah, we've got a big couple of weeks ahead of us. We certainly do. We were talking about this earlier um, in the week on social media. It's very exciting times. Might we learn there's a new master before we learn there's a new doctor? Yeah. Is the doctor's regeneration tied into the master's possible regeneration? There's so many questions. Maybe some of them are already answered by the time you're hearing this. Yeah, look, there is, and it's all coming at the end of what I think most fans have thought has been a really good season of the show. Look, the bottom line is there's never been a more exciting time to be a Doctor Who fan. (laughs) And I think that's a great point to end on. Thanks, Dave. (laughs) We'll talk soon. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, or names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.